Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of debt, Neil Garfield. Hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, June 4th, 2020. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. We apologize for technology issues over the last couple of weeks. The good news is we're actively considering switching to Zoom for video and audio-only shows. Um, any comments on that are welcome. Uh, you can send it by email to neilfgarfield at hotmail.com. In just a few minutes, Attorney Charles Marshall will join me to discuss an important case where, as the attorney for the homeowner, he succeeded where other attorneys have failed. It reveals the holes in the great, what I call, Chase Wamu heist. Charles, when others failed, won, and still others said it couldn't be done. There's an interesting phenomenon taking place. Some anti-bank protesters, with whom I mostly agree, are holding on to the wrong idea that it's absolutely impossible for homeowners to win in court on anything, even though there have been cases decided favorably to homeowners like I've done many times, Charles Marshall, Jeff Barnes, Steve Jacobs, Gary Dubin, just to name a few. There's dozens of them across the country. Homeowners do win and they should. They got drafted into a securitization scheme about which they knew nothing and they didn't get paid anything for their crucial role in the creation, issuance, selling, trading of securities and hedge products that were based upon the homeowner issuing a note and mortgage. So don't talk to me about a free house when the investment banks got free securities. It's true that homeowners rarely win, but they do win often enough, and it gets reported even more rarely because successful homeowners receive settlements in exchange for silence, and they agree to expunge the court record. So unless you're really on top of it like I am, you don't even know about all the times that homeowners have won. This is not because favorable decisions are flukes. It's not because of some rare technicality. It's because these cases are rarely litigated properly for homeowners. So... Most homeowners lose even though they could have won or they walk away not realizing that they might be owed money, not the other way around. I think some of the anti-bank people are spreading fake news and misinformation, even if they don't mean to be doing that. Litigation is a skill set. 
that most lay people lack, and even many attorneys lack. But you need law school, you need experience of being in court, trying cases, studying the rules and laws of evidence, and motion practice, and strategizing if you want to win. It's not enough to be right. You have to do it right in court. The Internet is a great place for exchange of ideas, but not so much a place to do research unless you're relying on reliable sources, credible sources, with the credentials, skills, licensing, training, education, and actual experience. Anyone can walk into a courtroom, but it is a select few who know what to do when they enter the room. There are people out there who seem to have a preference for despair. And I understand that. It's it, it, it it's very frustrating what the Wall Street investment banks have done and what the courts have done with it. But those who look at it as the glass half empty don't don't like the idea that prior bad decisions were in large part bad lawyering by pro se litigants and unskilled lawyers. They want to promote the idea that courts are fundamentally corrupt and that it is not possible to win, and that's why the government needs to be overthrown. On some level, I resonate with that sentiment, but I don't think that the courts are fundamentally corrupt. I think they're easily influenced. I promote the idea that good lawyering produces good results, more often than not, despite bias and occasional corruption in the court. Charles Marshall is a very well-educated, experienced attorney who has devoted most of his time to helping consumers and particularly homeowners in distress. He is a licensed attorney, and his practice extends throughout the state of California, and federal courts. He knows what to do in a courtroom. And he's a friend of mine and an important contributor to my work in educating the public, law enforcement, lawyers, and homeowners on struggles for dealing with the mess created by false claims of securitization, ownership and authority over transactions in which the claiming parties have no actual financial interest and do not represent anyone who does have such an interest. Charles Marshall, co-host of the Western edition of this show, welcome to my world. Uh, Absolutely, Neil. It's great to be on your show as a guest today. So maybe you could spend a minute or two summarizing the Masood decision, if I'm pronouncing that right, and then go on to talk about what you think it means and how it might be used. I think the decision you got in Masood is reflective of the difference between good lawyering and either bad or lazy lawyering. You don't need to comment on that part. You're still more active in in dealing with other lawyers than I am, so I got a little bit more leeway in, in being able to criticize. But you did succeed where most others have failed. So 
What's with the Masood decision? How'd you get it? And what does it mean? From what you just said, uh, proper pronunciation is Masood. And I think there's a fundamental that I've sometimes discussed on your show that is kind of in the background, in the backdrop to all this. Uh, the lawyering here, I think inevitably, but certainly typically, it requires of the lawyer that they have a deep background in financial services and that they know a lot about the number crunching, how derivatives work, how these types of pooling servicing agreements come about, what's in them, how the assignments operate. I really think that's actually a fundamental part. It's not to say that there haven't been attorneys in California or for that matter all over the country who don't have that background, who succeeded and pushed these claims forward. I nevertheless think that's, if not an absolutely necessary component, I wouldn't go that far, but it shows up a lot. It showed up in my previous appellate wins and, uh, you know, the dozens of litigation wins, you know, many wins within a particular case over the years in foreclosure. And that expertise enables the lawyer to analyze you know, the relevant documents confirm what other people are analyzing when they get the forensic loan audits to break everything down. And then you can really go after the problems with the assignments per se and individually. And that, that all makes a big difference at the end of the day. And I think one, one aspect of this appeal that's really interesting as I will discuss the holding now is that procedurally the whole wrongful foreclosure aspect, that was never pled at the lower level. Uh, I came into this case at the appeal stage only for a large portion of the case at the lower level. Uh, the plaintiff was on her own, so to speak, in pro per. And wrongful foreclosure was never pled. Uh, the first amendment complaint was filed before a sale that happened think a relatively short time after it was crafted this this complaint never made it to another amendment stage now of course that's fully available at least on the issue of wrongful foreclosure what's interesting here is that the court i think really dramatically it's it's an appellate standard of review that they're citing and this is on page 10 where they do this. It's on a, if you go to the opinion itself, and then it's even more at the end of page 11 into page 12, where the court really breaks down. It's one of the best distillations I've ever seen for how a demure is supposed to be considered in California. And of course, in other states, they'll call a motion to dismiss something other than a demure uh, in a number of situations. It's the same thing analytically and procedurally and even legally. Uh, that, that standard is supposed to allow liberal amendment. And it's supposed to say, look, if you have any legal theory at all, even one not in the pleadings, even when one the court has to craft, then that should be available and that should move the case forward on that basis. 
That's a so really you're referring. So, so, so you're referring to the quote that begins at the bottom of page 11, that where the court says, we look for any facts in the complaint sufficient to state a cause of action under any possible legal theory, whether that theory was articulated in the trial court, raised for the first time on appeal, or suggested for the first time by the appellate court. That is absolutely right, and it's the most powerful statement I've ever seen in print. I've seen a lot similar, but that is the most powerful one statement I've ever seen explaining how the demure principle is supposed to work. And so it really is a de novo review as to the appeal itself uh, on the question of demure. Now, if this had gone to a motion for summary judgment before trial, if it had passed the demure stage, then the appellate standard is abuse of discretion. But that's not the case here, and I've seen a lot of appellate courts, I wouldn't necessarily screw it up, but they do not, they do not state and they do not so powerfully relate that the demure standard really is supposed to be a very minimal standard of dismissal. Instead, way too many California foreclosure cases are dismissed at the premiere stage. They shouldn't be, and even as here, where Rafa foreclosure wasn't even pled, and it was principally not pled because the property had not gone to sale, and the proper plaintiff didn't know every aspect of every legal theory that she might have brought or could have brought. Again, I came in only at the appellate stage. Nevertheless, for the court to actually go back and reconstruct this case to put wrong foreclosure in it, that is very powerful. And that relates to the holding itself, which largely is found on the the middle page paragraph, starting on page 9. Our decision in Sharada dictates that Masood, and then it goes on. It really is is limiting... um, the pleadings, I believe, to, to roll off the foreclosure. Now, it's not shutting down that we can still try to amend on title and contract claims, though a large portion of the opinion before page 9 it kind of throws water in a wet blanket on those potential claims. It doesn't so much say they're not available at all uh, when this case will be amended, uh, which, which obviously I'll be filing amendments in the coming weeks or months, depending on the reband timeline and all that type of thing. So bottom line, the holding year is, I think, reasonably and certainly if narrowly, but even reasonably construed as limited to highlighting that, yes, Allah, even though by yes, Sharada, both of which did plead wrongful foreclosure, that that's an available legal cause of action where the property goes to sale. And there's a predicate showing that there really is an assignment problem. And here, the argument was so finely, sort of finely um, articulated, uh, the opinion actually cites a contrary case, Gillies, where the plaintiff didn't get leave to amend and there they cite that the alleged note and deed of trust were almost certainly sold to a third party. That was not even enough 
to get the demure to go, to go, you know, to essentially. Well, that's why I think, Charles, that's why I think. Here there was a bald allegation that, yes, this was sold. Anyway, go ahead. That's why I think that this case represents a fundamental shift in the attitude of the court. Because, first of all, they, they say on page 11, they're quoting from the Ivanova decision, a California Supreme Court decision, that the borrower owes money not to the world at large, but to a particular person or institution. And only the person or institution entitled to payment may be may enforce the debt by foreclosing on the security. That's something that is largely overlooked by the court. And then they go on a little further down the paragraph on page 11. At this point, it remains a factual question as to which persons or entities held the beneficial interest in the deed of trust at the time of the foreclosure. Chase may have inherited servicing rights or responsibilities from WAMU, but that does not erase Masood's injury if a party with no beneficial interest in her loan directed foreclosure on her house. I think that's an invitation to sue the investment banker that was in charge of the securitization scheme. I might be reading too much into it, but that's my my view of it. And I think that the court is looking for support from other courts. And, and so it, that moves me to the question of why do you think the court said the opinion was not for publication? Uh, unfortunately, this is a really typical scenario. Uh, when our side wins, it's rare that we get our, our, our opinions published. I mean, there have been some other cases, a number of them. I'm sure if they were all added up, possibly a half dozen, maybe even a dozen over the last four years since Ivanova and Sharada, which came out, you know, Ivanova came out in February of 2016. Sharada came out in May of 2016. And there were publishing issues with both those cases. They ultimately were published, and it was essentially directed by the court that they be published. There were still some issues with that. Glasky, remember, back in 2014, was depublished for a while after being published. And then there had to be a, a sort of a fulcrum of people to, to get it back published. So our side, it's an, it, is, it goes to this whole institutional bias thing that I talk about. And so, yes, I think that's a primary reason here. And I think it's to blunt and limit how much traction these cases are going to have. I do want to speak, though, uh, because this goes directly to what you were talking about earlier in terms of this is a sign that the system is completely corrupt and biased. I will say that. Of, of all my four appellate wins you know, related to foreclosure, every single time that happened, there were major uh, tells at the hearing and even before the hearing that that my side was going to win. 
And so it's not like this is a fluke. In, in fact, the very tells, and, and in this case, the appellate oral argument was set up by a briefing order, a supplemental briefing order ordered by the court uh, a couple months before oral argument. And it's, it's set up uh, the legal question of whether wrongful foreclosure can be added, should be added, and whether the title claims can be sustained. Now, in terms of how this opinion comes down, I think the title claims are still on life support. I'm going to, to fight that in court, obviously. But there's no question that this, this holding makes it clear that wrongful foreclosure can and should be added and should survive the mirror. And that's very powerful. And this was the court's suggestion during supplemental briefing, uh, inviting supplemental briefing. Like I said, when I got these other appellate ones, they weren't always this directed by the court. But this is very powerful stuff. It shows that the courts are still an open forum to some extent. They're not completely corrupt. You, you will have the legitimate entertaining of our views. And I think one reason this case was chosen is because it was very well briefed. And even outside of the wealth foreclosure aspect, which was only lightly touched on because it wasn't even played at a lower level, the other causes of action, a lot of analysis and argument went into that at the appellate briefing stage. It gave this, this, this case, as it were, the appellate case, the underlying appellate case, a lot of heft and credibility. So it allowed this court to use it as a vehicle to make their point about brought up a foreclosure. So it's very heartening that, yes, the system sometimes will work, but not just that. This was not like some Herculean effort on my part. Yes, I put a lot of time and I put a lot of good argument in, but it was actually the court that came to me and said, you know, we see the wrongful foreclosure could be pled here. Uh, I think we'll set this case up so that you can win on that. That's exactly what happened. It's pretty powerful. And it does show that, that the bias on the other side is not completely swapping the system. Sometimes the side uh, uh, of the angels, so to speak, our side, will actually be nudged by the court to to prevail. That's what happened here. Yep, that's what I, that's how I see it. And by the way, I didn't say it to begin with, but congratulations on this win. Uh, it's it's a great example of good lawyering. Oh, thank you. I, so, I really appreciate it. And, yeah, I so, think this goes back to, you know, we talked a lot about discovery, doing discovery at the lower level where you can really get to the factual record, making the factual record as precise as possible, making your allegations as clean and clear as possible. Those are some of the things you, you can do. One thing I'll say, I know we're we're coming up on time here. Uh, I, I, I want to other input, but I will say one of the really powerful implications of this, uh, and I think this is the most powerful aspect put together, two, two kind of principles. One is if this, if this case is followed, and I know it's, it's limited for publishing purposes, but people should remember that under California rules of court, you can bring in an unpublished opinion if there's a race judicata or, or a collateral estoppel issue. So those come up a lot in these cases in a lot of different guises and contexts. So litigants should remember whether they're in pro per or they have attorneys 
advancing their cases. They should remember, you know, go to the California Rules of Court on this this issue, and you'll be able to see that there is an exception whereby these cases can uh, be argued. Uh, so, you know, that's an important exception. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that. The, yeah, this is in California. I don't know to what extent it applies in other states. It might because it's, it's something that could – one might call it a general principle of law. The other really powerful thing about this is I think it's going to help with sale date postponements. I think it's going to give real pause to the opposition because, okay, it's frustrating that we're still not getting the courts to acknowledge that, look, if you're, if you're getting real damage, which clearly you are, when you're property is sold out from under you, if the, if the seller doesn't even have the bona fides to show they control your note uh, and heat of trust properly, that where you have that, then why, when you're threatened with sale, when your credit is ruined, uh, when you're practically driven out of your house because you're getting rotating sale dates, I mean, that's not sufficient harm for the same principle to apply. I still don't get that. But what this means Yeah, I don't is, either. I don't either. But what this means, what this means, real world and legal world, is that the other side is going to have to have great pause in taking property to sale for the simple reason that if they do pull the trigger and take the property to sale, now they do have the wrongful foreclosure claim. And look, the wrongful foreclosure claim in California is available by you know, um, uh, legal theory and the statutory theory under which it, it rests. Statute of limitations is, you know, again, depending on how it's framed, two to four years. This case is one where theoretically it wouldn't be available. The court is still reading it in. It's applying, and it's an essentially tolling the statute of limitations. I mean, this is very powerful, and it's really revived wrongful foreclosure as a powerful tool in causes of action because there there is a lot of weight and heft to a wrongful foreclosure remedy. It can be travel damages. With that. The damages can be based on the value or the loan amount variously. Yeah, you're talking in California, you're talking about millions of dollars in some cases, certainly high six figures. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, to get any other sense you had, Neil, of, of, of what we're looking at here. I think I, I think you really hit all the main points, uh, just like you did when you took the appeal and won it. Uh, I, the only thing that's left out, out, uh, open to me as a question is the ramifications for local government stuck with unpaid liens on property where Chase was the foreclosing party, and we know that that if they were making their claim because of the Chase-Wamu deal on September 25, 2008, that that's a false claim. So who does the local government go after? And the same question is for investors. If they were for, if Chase was foreclosing, where did that money go? And we know that investors don't have any right to any right title or interest to the debt note or mortgage, but was Chase interfering with a reasonable business expectation of investors 
regarding the proceeds from loans, since that's what it was all about. So I'm kind of wondering about that. It's not something we have time to discuss here, but uh, uh, maybe at a a future show, you and I can uh, ruminate about such things. In the meanwhile... Yeah, I would like to do that. So... Yeah, I, I I I would like to explore that when we when we have the time. Well, Charles Marshall has once again uh, revealed his skill, uh, and uh, not for the first time, not for the last. And uh, I was glad to have you on the show, Charles. And uh, thanks for taking the time to be here. Absolutely, Neil. As you know, I'll be in touch. All right. Thank you, everybody. Good night. See you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.